Hi, this is Britton LaRue, and this is Moon to Moon. For this 13th episode, I'm very... (laughs) I'm very pleased and proud to share my first interview. And that interview is with one of my teachers, Laura Valeda Vesta. So I just want to... Before I jump into the interview space, I want to share a little bit about what this means to me and what I would like to like um, invite you, listener, into considering as you listen to us. Teachers are really important for me. Um, I always loved school. I've always loved learning. I'm a very Jupiterian person. Um, Jupiter is the principle of expansion and stretching yourself and reaching. And part of how we expand is through opening into new ways of thinking, of being in the world, of thinking and imagining beyond the scope of your own positionality traveling, um, finding new frameworks, new words, new people to open up a vista or remove a veil in ways that change you. And I see this as something that deeply ties me to my grandfather, who was a very Jupiterian person and who shared with me deep, deep love of learning and um, finding another way to think about something. And as I've gotten older and he's been gone longer and longer, I, I love so much that this was passed to me and I feel him very much rooting me on right now in honoring a teacher. I didn't expect to be... Um, so I think because of my deep enthusiasm there's a Jupiter word Jupiter rules my sun, Mercury and Venus in my chart because all are in Pisces one of Jupiter's two signs the other being Sagittarius I've always magnetized good teachers When I think of these humans, um, whether in person or through their their texts or their oral teachings, the ones who shifted me, (laughs) it's so moving. And we talk in this episode about how the teacher is an opener of portals, is a key is a bridge to help us move into the next realm that is meant for us. And for me, the best teachers have always, 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 always been the ones that aren't trying to fill us up and tell us how to think or just, you know, cram us with information, but are the ones who facilitate an opening for us to see ourselves, for us to have our own insight, 
with the help of that new framing, right? And so for me, I've always sought the teachers that empower me to stay sovereign and to stay in my own space. I haven't always been good at this because I've had other things going on, like wanting to please, (laughs) wanting to be like somebody's special darling. And, you know, that's been part of my life path is learning how to deeply, deeply revere and respect my teachers while still holding my own space and keeping sovereignty in with my own information and with my own knowing and trusting myself that um, I can receive the guidance and then um, keep going with my portal, like to the next portal, right, with the help. And because uh, the more that I keep my own self-sovereign, I found that it's really not a problem for me in also allowing my teachers to have their own humanity, you know, because it can be deeply painful when we've given so much um, of our power and respect to a teacher and then we find out that they're also having a human experience and capable of lying or capable of a power play. They can be capable of oppression in some way or domination. They can be... um, capable of stealing and they can even be capable of stealing a student's ideas and then not um, being able to admit it you know like these things can happen and it's really hard on people who love being students and who revere their teachers but I think that and I'm certainly not condoning any of that stuff but I'm just speaking on teachers here for a little bit before we begin that it's important to remember that all teachers, anyone who's kind of like a guru type person, be also allowed the space to be in their own humanity and be just like living their own human experience. And to also be able to capable of making mistakes and capable of admitting that they would have rewarded something differently later. Um, let them be capable of getting new information and having a different way of talking about it, you know, obviously including myself, I feel like what I'm looking for are teachers who really um, are showing up for their human experience, really trying to be in integrity and then have the humility to also, um, you know, admit when they've shifted a little bit with new information. And I think you know you have this in a teacher where you if you feel spaciousness with them, you know, if you feel space to just be yourself, if you feel space to not um, have to find the one answer and the one meaning and the one way, if you feel free to experiment and if you feel free to disagree, I think that what we're looking for with our teachers is spaciousness to hold our own voice and our own sovereignty. And I do think that it's perfectly normal and fine and lovely to have periods of our life where we're, like, where we're really into a certain teacher and where we're really into a certain voice. And it's okay if we begin to feel like that teacher shared with us like their key tools and we just maybe don't wanna to listen to their podcast that much anymore 
or we don't feel like we need to take their classes anymore. That doesn't mean that they weren't incredibly important to us, but it just means that like our time walking with them has passed on and we can just feel so much gratitude for what what we did receive from them. But if they're no longer sort of like enchanting us, so to speak, I think it's really just a sign of like, oh, what a beautiful thing to feel in completion in a way. Um, it doesn't mean we can spiral back to a teacher, but that um, that we really just received these beautiful gifts that allow us to then walk towards the next teacher. So another sign of a good teacher is those who give spaciousness to their students to kind of let those completions naturally happen, trusting that that student um, may circle back or they may not, but that it was good while it was going, you know? And I, I do think this is all natural and like, uh, part of the process. Um, so we can have death cycles with our teachers and death cycles with fields of study. We can have these death cycles that are all very normal because it's just, we're just passing out of something in order to begin another thing. And it's important to allow that to all happen in kind of a natural way that we celebrate and honor. So much of what Laura and I talk about in our interview are these transitions and our death passages and our ways of honoring when something is over um, in order to allow ourselves to regenerate. So I think that that definitely can happen with teachers. In this interview, I share throughout, it kind of takes the whole episode for me to get through the story of how I've come to her work and the various ways that her words and her methods have been very, very important for me. Um, So I won't say that up front because I think it's worth listening to how it kind of naturally comes out across over the episode. It's a really deep episode. It's really honest. It's, um, it's really powerful. And, um, I will share with listeners that it has been a trust thing to know when I'm ready to do an interview. That's not an easy thing. You know, it's not easy to be interviewed. I've now had that a few times And there's some anxiety around that, you know, like, will I be dazzling? Like, what if I don't know how to answer their question? Or what if I regret the way I answered the question and now all these people hear it and it's out of my control? You know, you you move through that. And with this one, I had to trust, again, that, you know, I don't need to overplan this. I don't need to overthink it. Like, the key is feeling into, like, what are the questions that will be most meaningful for me to bring to her in order to draw forth the the conversation that will really honor uh, how incredible she is as a human being. And um, I feel really proud of how it turned out because I just... She just comes through so strong, and I just am so excited for anyone who's never heard of Laura Valeda Vesta to now be introduced to her because she is a magnificent being who has so much to teach. I told her after we finished recording that I feel like 
her teachings have so much potency that I feel like if I just like tap my pinky, kind of like imagining her, her, uh, the essence of Laura Valeda Vesta, imagining it's like, you know, potion in a cauldron. I get, all I have to do is like tap my pinky finger in and it's like, oh, oh my gosh, like I have to like back away and just process for a month, you know, because it doesn't take very much to get so much from her. She's a very powerful person who speaks very deeply from her authentic truth place. So <laughs> my hope with the interview was that I wouldn't get chatty because I was nervous because I, I just really wanted to stay out of the way and allow something to come through that would really celebrate and honor all that she is, even if it's, you know, partial, it's partial. It's only a, a, a piece of what you can imagine that you can learn from her. But I feel that that partial bit really sings uh, her song and I'm very proud so her official bio is this Laura Valeda Vesta MFA is an artist author storyteller and educator transforming chronic illness into a myth path of healing and reclaiming she is the author of the moon divas guidebook and the Moon Divas Oracle, illustrator of the Moon Divas Oracle cards, and her most recent book is the forthcoming Wild Soul Runes, Reawakening the Ancestral Feminine. Ever a student, her research interests include ancestral connection and disability as initiation. initiation. She shares her journey with myth-telling, folk magic, ancestor lore, and ritual practice with her Patreon community and through classes at the Wild Souls School. So here is my interview with Laura Valeda Vesta. I'll tune back in on the other side with more thoughts and shares. Thank you for listening. Thank you, Laura, for being with me here today on Moon to Moon. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you. I wanted to share with you that this is my 13th episode. Ooh, that's wonderful. The energy of that mystery. And you're my first podcast guest. It's my first interview. So there's also the energy of one and beginnings. Mm, so I think so that's exciting. a fun way to think about this episode is that it carries both the one and the 13 together. Mm, that's <laughs> exciting. I love that. Yay. I just realized that on a walk this morning, actually. <laughs> so um, my intention with you is to have an opportunity to share with listeners of Moon to Moon, the work of somebody who is a big teacher for me in my own process. Moon to Moon is a space where I share basically how I hold myself um, by leaning into cycles and into spirals. <laughs> so part of that's with astrology, a lot of that's with the lunar cycle. Um, I lean on the symbolic languages of myth and the tarot as well. 
I kind of just pull from lots of things. I'm very multidisciplinary and I was back in my academic background as well. And so Moon to Moon is really just a place where I talk about the energies that I'm working with and like themes that I'm working with. And then I lean on other symbolic languages to help me. And I talk a lot about teachers and people who have guided me to my understandings of these things. So does that make sense? So, mm -hmm. so I've been dreaming about having an interview and I had kind of my wish list of people that I feel like have been really important for me at as like expander type people who um, opened portals, who just, mm -hmm. just through meeting their work, I felt like I moved into a whole new level of what I was wanting to do and what I was calling in for myself. And I could feel a sense of growing and expanding happening in me because of keywords the person uses, because of their methods, because of just their presence in my life. like all kinds of factors and you've been really important for me in my life so thank you for being here this is a real joy <laughs> oh, i'm so honored by that and can i just say i've been thinking a lot about teachers lately and i love the way you articulate the meaning of the teachers in your life and teachers not just being people that you know, you've like purchased information from or that gave you a degree or anything, but teachers as people who open portals. I love that. That's so beautiful. Yes, thank you. Um, I mean, I want to dig into a lot of your methods, but one of my favorite things that you do as a teacher is you regularly just emphasize that learning, growing, healing, everything is non-linear. So if you're just picking up little pieces, like if you can only pop in, that all of this is okay and that we're in this process and it really has helped sort of calm my nervous system and permission me to just trust that even if I'm not super active in whatever you're doing, that in tuning in as I can, I am gleaning things and I am growing from them. And in trusting it, I've actually been seeing how that works because I do feel like I'm learning from you in huge ways, even if it's like very gentle kind of tapping, you know, it's not like full flown, you know? So uh, that method in itself has been really important for me because I am a t I'm a teacher as well. And so I'm able to then shift into that trust in my own teaching and uh, let people hear that same language so that they cannot feel like they have to keep up and they have to, you know, come to every single thing and like finish on time and all of these things that can create a lot of shame or panic that end up just, it's so self-defeating, right? Mm -hmm. So <laughs> thank you. <laughs> oh, you're welcome. That's, I mean, that really developed out of absolute necessity for me from my illness and just not being able to engage in the ways that I would like to or the ways that I could before and recognizing that huge transformations come even sometimes from one word, one phrase, one idea, one symbol. It doesn't have to be we're like so more is better in this culture. We just inundate ourselves with information and then get overwhelmed and then tune out. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> this is 
precisely the old way. And I think <laughs> I'd probably be dropping into levels of healing on that for decades, maybe for my, as long as I have this in this one body. <laughs> well, okay, let's then back up because I want to hear more about how you came into that methodology and just learn, you know, I met, I found your work a year ago. And so it was already, it already felt like it had a structure that had been lived in a little while. And so I've been sort of playing catch up over time. And I would love to learn more about how you came to work the way that you do, how you came to some of these keywords that you use a lot, like, um, the like just different initiatory languages, um, mm. the initiation process itself, witch wounds, um, nonlinearity, all of these words that I lean on a lot from you. I'm just wondering if, and we're gonna trust that however you tell it, it was gonna be exactly right. Cause I'm sure that you could go on for hours. <laughs> but Just trusting, you know, I would love to, um, hear more about your story, if you don't mind. Sure, of course not. Um, that, yes, you're right. It's a long, long story, very convoluted, but um, I am, I was a university professor and a, I have a degree in fiction writing and MFA, so I taught English and, um, and a number of other classes to freshman seminar, things like that. And so I have this really strong academic background and uh, worked in academia and then started my own business. I, I had some family issues and family needs that I had to tend with my children. Um, so I stepped away from university teaching, but this entire time, and this is over the course of about a decade, I was getting progressively more and more ill. I had a lot of symptoms that were being attributed to the amount of stress in my life. I was a single mom and then I was in a blended family and of course trying to work full time and then trying to work beyond work teaching workshops. I mean, just overloading myself the way that so many um, people in this culture do, specifically women um, who have families, at least in my understanding, that has been a pattern that I've witnessed. And, um, and then I reached a point where I could not go on any further. Um, I was just constantly struggling in my life, compensating for my physical um, difficulties. And, and I, then I had the brilliant idea that I was going to start graduate school again and go back and get a PhD because I've been working so much with um, spirituality and I wanted to get a PhD in philosophy and religion and kind of get myself out of the English department to be able to, my goal was to create spiritual programming, non-religious spiritual programming for universities because there's a big missing piece in academia. The spirit is often missing in um, our educational processes. So, um, but that year, 2016, I was teaching full-time. I had three middle school age children and I was also a full-time PhD student and I went down. Mm. Um, my illness just hit a wall and 
I was diagnosed that winter. I finished my semester in tears and was diagnosed later that week with myalgic encephalomyelitis, chronic fatigue syndrome, um, which is a disease that no one in my area knew anything about. There are no specialists in this area. So I received this really intense diagnosis for the, a lifelong illness that can sometimes end in severe disability or death, and I had no, no place to go with it. Um, I ended up in bed and spent the better part of the next couple of years in bed. Um, when I wasn't in bed, because I'm a compulsive learner, I was learning all of this information about um, my ancestral spiritual traditions, my work in spirituality prior to that, like so many people who are racialized as white had been rooted in practices that were very appropriative. And um, I was seeking to divest myself from those practices and discovering that my own lineage traditions had all of this richness. And so I wanted to share that with people. I had also had some training um, as a ceremonial celebrant. So that was where I came into an understanding of rites of passage and the importance of the initiatory process. And, and that's when I started offering classes um, in my nonlinear way because my illness is cyclic. And at that time I didn't, my, um, I was actually living in a house with toxic mold. I didn't know that, which was making my disease much worse. And, um, and that was how I, I started teaching in this nonlinear way, because when the, when the rains would come, I would get super sick, or I would get exposed to toxins outside my home, and I would get super sick. And so I had to teach in a nonlinear way. And, um, and then came a lot more stuff, tons of moves. Um, really 2017 to 2018 was a year of tremendous transition. And, um, and in the fall of 2018, just about this time of year, I ended up with severe um, ME-CFS, which I couldn't really stand. I couldn't leave my room. I needed assistance with almost all of my activities of daily living. And, um, and that was because I was detoxing from mold after living in mold a couple of times over the years. And then, um, and, and then I healed, I healed. I'm not, you know, I still have chronic fatigue syndrome. I still have this cyclic illness, but I was able to, after um, going through that intensive, what I call a death transition of um, where I actually thought I was going to lose my life. I was so incredibly sick. Um, I healed and, and on the other side um, have continued to, to do this work only in a, in a different way with a really different perspective because coming that close to my own mortality has um, connected me to things that I just just were not accessible to me before and also removed me from like pretty much every normal social sphere that I ever occupied. Like it's, it's all gone. <laughs> so, so that's the, that's the story of how I started with this work. Yeah. So when you send um, writings and you have this back, such rich soil to, to, like ground us in to teach us about 
working with our grief and, and working with death cycles? Is it really from that period of and how you were holding yourself and things that came to you, things that um, supported you? How did you how did you anchor? You know? It definitely I'd had a lot of death transitions prior to that. You know, I was divorced. I um, had, you know, a lot of job loss, a lot of, uh, you know, I'd lost my home a couple of times. I lost the homes that I was living in, um, but nothing, nothing like that physical transformation where everything was gone. And, uh, you know, just the dissolution of that was total. So yes, that's where all of my reference points go now is to that, that transition and the 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 mind constantly trying to reconcile trying to either get back to where i was some which was so long ago now or trying to project forward into a a future that isn't isn't the reality of this body anymore it's pretty fantastic mm -hmm. but um yeah that was my major rite of passage and the things that rooted me are ritual you know, daily ritual practice. Even when I was bedridden, I had rituals that I would do. Um, ancestor work, really knowing, feeling, understanding, not just my human ancestors, but my non-human ancestors and feeling connected to this earth and finding purpose in that. Knowing that my life has a purpose, that I am the accumulation of so many survivors and that I will have a legacy that I leave as well. Um, that has been really important. And then myth, because myth gives us a roadmap mm -hmm. to exactly these kinds of transformations. The, the dangers that we face on the path of our humanness are all encoded in myth. And, um, and when I couldn't read and I couldn't write, which those are my two those are my two loves, reading and writing. I had stories still. I could listen. I could listen to stories. And, um, and I started telling stories in that time. And that was such a gift. So those are the things that have sustained me and stay with me. Um, and that I try to bring to all of my offerings. Just that, you know, we have these universal aspects of our humanness that are with us no matter what even if we're dying even if we're moving through the most difficult painful time of our lives we can tap into these enduring pieces of humanness and and find the strength to survive mm -hmm. thank you do you mind sharing if there are any particular um i don't know if you would say deities or energies or spirits that you felt most, you know, that just like tug at you when you think about how they held you through certain times? So um, I worked heavily with the Norse, um, you know, that she's called the goddess, but that terminology I just learned is very patriarchal. So we'll just call her ancestor, um, Hel, um, who mm. is the, the, the death she's seen now as the goddess of death but looking at her etymology and looking at some of the other indigenous traditions of northern europe um, there is this compassionate creative entity that is uh, holds space for us 
in our transformations, in our death transformations. And so I was reading a lot about her right before I went into my own death transition. And I had worked with her and dreamed about her. Um, I actually had a dream where I was laying my head in her lap and she's in um, the medieval version of the Norse myths. She's half dead, half rotting corpse and half living human. And in the dream, I had my head on her bone lap and she was stroking my hair with her bone hand. And it was the most peaceful dream I think I've ever had. It was just, I felt so at home and so beautiful and coming face to face with with a concept of death that isn't about fear and avoidance and um, that's really about acceptance and peace felt so nourishing to me at that time. And I, um, I have great reverence for, for Helen, continue to study her and learn about her because there's so much that we're missing in our contemporary versions of her mythology. So I'm digging for those threads right now, finding more information. I, did you do a drawing of her perhaps? Mm -hmm. I feel like I'm remembering this really visceral image of like a bone woman who was still very inviting and like, shall we say maternal? I mean, mm -hmm. caretaking at least, right? Mm -hmm. Oh, I love that. <laughs> <laughs> I imagine your art has sustained you quite a bit. It has. That was you know, when I'm, when I'm able to draw, which is fairly frequently now, I don't lose that ability so much. That's something that does go when I get really symptomatic and have a lot of pain. I can't sit and draw. My line art is really intricate and it's hard. I get a lot of um, joint pain, but, um, but it, ha it helps me integrate a lot of what I read. And I find that having that image, you know, to synthesize the words is so useful to to have them both and it's cross hemispheric too right we're using both sides of our brain when we're working with image and words so definitely art is is an integrative process and of course art is a human legacy that is pre like pre-verbal potentially pre-language so yeah. Well, I, um, oh my gosh, we're at an intersection where I have multiple questions for you. <laughs> <laughs> because when you say you want to dig deeper into uh, learning about hell, it makes me think about the gift you gave me in your runic feminine group, talking about unverifiable personal gnosis. Mm -hmm. I gnosis or gnosis. I'm kind of a, a well-known like um, mispronouncer. <laughs> um, gnosis. I love this term and I could not believe the gifts that came in in the, the prompts that you gave us to connect mm -hmm. with the runes. It really was portal opening for me mm -hmm. to go beyond the runes just to all kinds of realms with trusting myself. And so I would love to hear you talk and define for listeners what that term means and really set it adjacent to the fact that you have this academic background, as do I, is part of what draws me to your word as well, and how you work with um, 
holding both with respect and care and valuing both evidence and the way we think about evidence, primary evidence, sourcing, citing. I loved your post the other day, by the way, about citing and being sacred mm-hmm. or, or sourcing mm-hmm. sacred. Um, how you hold that with unverifiable personal gnosis of you know access to um, a different kind of evidence or a different kind of knowing and knowledge and just how you came to that and how you define it. I would love to hear you talk about that. <laughs> That's one of my, that was a portal opening concept for me too. And that actually came from, um, there's an author who's very controversial. I always preface his work because I know he's controversial, but his work has been portal opening for me. And he's, um, his name is Raven Caldera and he does a lot of work with Northern European traditions, spiritual traditions. And um, I have a hard time with dogma. You know, I was, um, my, my spiritual background, my parents were hippies and I grew up in the woods. That was my spiritual world. But um, I have family members that are extremely religious and I also lived in a very religious community. So I did go to church and was given a lot of dogma. And there's this idea that, you know, you can maybe have a personal relationship with God, but you are not a conduit for divine information. You know, that it's like all the information is already there and you just have to go to the information that's there. And I think that my early, um, I've identified secretly as a pagan or a heathen. I don't really have words for what I am now. I just call myself an animist because that feels the most appropriate. Yeah. And, um, but, but coming into that in that, you know, dogmatic religious community, dogmatic religious language, and then searching for some sort of truth was almost impossible. It was like, my own intuition would be telling me something and then I'd be reading these books that weren't even based in history that were just made up stuff that, you know, were so formulaic. You have to do this to cast a spell. You have to do this to have a ritual. And none of it felt authentic or resonant to me the way that being in the woods felt authentic and resonant or communicating with, um, you know, I was always in communication with my ancestors, even before I knew who or what they were. So, so coming into Gnosis, that was a concept I first read in one of Raven's books. And I was like, of course, of course, we all have the ability to receive divine information. We are all divine, all of us. Not one of us is more special than the other. You know, you may have people that have spiritual training and specific like indigenous lineage-based traditions. That's different. But I am a person who's racialized as white. My cultural um, lineage traditions have been so dismantled, broken up, sabotaged intentionally over time. Uh, For someone to tell me that, you know, everything has to be this certain way, if my soul is saying, "Uh uh-uh, then I'm going to see what I can find in the direction of my soul. And what I found is that there is a ton of information out there that is not published in like the new age 
pagan guidebook <laughs> to, you know, spiritual. And that's, I'm not trying to insult anyone's spiritual path. I'm just saying that those things limited me on mine until I started to trust the guidance that was coming through me, um, through my dreams, through uh, serendipity and synchronicity and the things that I would read or, or see even online or phone calls I would get from people. I mean, it just, your life is magic. And I think that your ancestors live inside of you and they are waiting for you to wake up and pay attention to what they've been speaking through your synapses, through your DNA this whole entire time. Similarly, we are part of the entire natural world. The air, the water, the sky, the sun, the birds, the animals, the plants, they are all speaking to you too. And so as you start to listen and be responsive to that, and I always say, I hold everything as real and not real at the same time. It's so much more fun to, to do that and to believe in everything. When you believe in everything, the most incredible stuff happens. I mean, it's just so cool. <laughs> and, and, and so I use my own gnosis and I've watched this happen now with so many people in, in when they find this concept and start to trust their own divine information then you start to, to research and find out, oh, yes, actually, this plant, lovage, is a traditional medicinal plant in my, my lineage. And yes, this is something that was part of potentially, you know, ceremonial significance in Scandinavia. And then you can begin to reweave these traditions that are so long torn, and you add your own unique signature to them. Because Spirituality is not static. It is not finished. It is not done. We need new spiritual information right now. We are at a point that we've never been in human history. So Gnosis work gives us the tools to, to reinvent and redefine what spirituality means. And I love it. <laughs> yes. Oh my gosh, that was beautiful. <laughs> I'm like cheering on these words. Thank you. That was such a gift. I, I really had this feeling of like, all you had to do was ask, you know, once, once I went in to it and uh, it just lights everything else up in, in the path. It's just so great. <laughs> I'm so glad. And I'm so, I'm so happy. Anyone who comes into that one of the things I will say about Gnosis is it's wonderful in community, which is why I love like yes. the feminine Gnosis group or um, any of the classes coming together and sharing what we're learning because that's when the magic happens. You'll have, you know, five people that are having these really serendipitous things going on half the world apart as yeah. they're working with the same rune. It's so cool. Uh. And just so affirming. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. I feel that holding me so much. Um, yes. Thank you so much. For You're that. welcome. I'm so um, glad. Yes. I, um, the other thing that you said in this last year to me, well, among many that to me, as in to your community, mm -hmm is you had this um, Patreon email, because if I didn't say it at the front end, I don't think I did. 
as soon as I found the Wild Soul School um, and read about your different classes, I joined your Patreon community mm -hmm. to do the most that I could afford a mm -hmm. month so that I could get as much as possible. Um, you had written once, your grief will determine your work in this world. Mm -hmm. And that just, whoa. That was just so rich. It really invited me to take a different relationship with my stories. And um, I think I was already there, you know, but if I had, so maybe I wouldn't have been able to fully hear that if I hadn't quite already done quite a lot of work with my grief, mm -hmm. maybe, maybe not, who knows. But it landed at like just this moment where I was really sensing that this is what I'm doing, actually. Like everything I'm doing is about my grief. I just hadn't realized it. <laughs> and it was, it was very helpful in terms of direction and um, actually like making love to my life story in a way. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, yes you know that's mm -hmm. so sweet and lovely and it's so um such an invitation to to um like recycle the grief story into the next thing it wants to be mm -hmm. which is also so much of what you talk about which is just the idea of the initiatory process from an old identity into the liminal to then the new identity which i personally feel like since i began a path of self-healing I'm kind of just doing that constantly. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> On the daily, even in the most subtle possible ways. Yes. <laughs> it just gets it easier, I suppose, the more I let it do what it wants to do. But um, yeah, your work around those sorts of rites of passages has been really helpful. And I feel like I've been maybe seeing more of that from you lately is because you're developing coursework um, on the topic potentially. Mm -hmm. That's I'd love for you to talk a little bit about that if you don't mind. Oh, I don't mind at all. I think that rites of passage are one of the pieces that we really miss culturally. We are missing a tremendous opportunity to honor our passages. That's what made me become a celebrant was recognizing that, you know, the few ceremonies we get in this lifetime in this culture, secular ceremonies even, do not honor the processes that we go through that, that transform us, that make us who we are. And without some ceremonial or mythic understanding of our rites of passage, we are wounded perpetually. We are ghosts. We are, have missing pieces of ourselves and um, are constantly seeking things that to fill up those holes or to try and nourish the ghost when really the goal is not to again it's not to go back it's not to become who you were it's to become who you are right now in that perfection and so yes i taught the myth as healer class this year that was my first new class in many years and that was really wonderful i want to teach it again next year this year we worked with the myth of um, vasalisa the brave which was so fun and looking at, at our rites of passage and how myth can help us work through rites of passage. 
Um, and then I'm teaching the ancestral connection class again this fall with a live component. And one of the intentions behind that is to look at our, our connection with our ancestors as helping us integrate these rites of passage, like our identities and our, um, our statuses change with rites of passage once we come back together into a new form. And I think working with our lineages can help us be strong in that, in a culture where the, the third phase of a rite of passage return, coming back to your community with new information and them honoring you with a new status and a new name. We don't really have that so much in our, in our culture. We really struggle to um, see people's transformations and honor them. So bringing our ancestors on board for that can be helpful in our initiatory process. And then I also have a class, The Art of Self-Initiation, which is really about rooting into self-care practices during that initiatory process and finding a way to nourish yourself deeply at every phase because you are so right. Rites of passage are, they're dramatic. And as you move towards self-healing, they are in fact perpetual. And you can be in multiple rites of passage. Like so many of us right now, we are in a collective rite of passage and we're in individual rites of passage. And you can be in all of the phases at the same time, which is why it can be so confusing. But but finding the things that nourish us deeply, finding our connection to myth, story, ancestry can really help to keep us rooted because it is a life path and it, it does not end. It's all preparing us for our final transformation, our greatest passage, which is when we leave this life. Yes. So I know I feel this so much for us in 2020. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's so hard to even imagine like how to even talk about it. Cause I think we're still so sort of mid zone or just like, you know, um, not knowing, but, um, I, I'm so glad I have tools. Like I'm, I'm planning to, I don't like to say I'm hoping cause hope not a great strategy, <laughs> but I, I, I want to take that class very much because I know that I will be anchored by it. Mm. Um, and I do think though about, like I have a 13 year old and an 11 year old yeah. and it's, it's sort of, I, I, I sometimes work with a sense of like a gap between going through my own self healing and feeling so held by this very sort of solitary space that I hold for myself or through Zoom with people all around the world and courses like what you offer. Um, but our children don't have the community type practices, of course, I would wish that they had. And I'm not, I'm still sort of insecure in a baby phase of figuring out how to turn this into something in my home life for my children. So I was just wondering how you've learned to teach your children or help your children through things because they're being also raised by this culture, right? Mm -hmm. um, yes. As they're also raised by you, right? Mm -hmm. So there's several things going on for them and they're their own unique human beings who may or may not be up for whatever you might want to shepherd them through, right? Mm -hmm. So I just wondered if you had any wisdom there. Well, in the same way that, so my kids are big now, which is 
I'm, you know, my heart goes out to all parents of children right now in this year. It is such a tremendously difficult year. Um, my youngest is 17. She's a senior in high school. And then my two older children are in college. And even with those dynamics, it's really difficult. But like the mid-year, like your kids are going through it or really young children. And I have a nephew who's five. And um, I think that for, for my kids, it's been really important for them to see my spiritual practice. I have a giant altar in our living room. I have our ancestors up there. I change it out all the time. You know, they've witnessed me in ritual, but I never, you know, they're always invited and they're never required. You know, they are always um, welcome. It's that same attitude of non-linearity and periphery. I noticed that, like I said, my, my parents were hippies. I grew up in the woods and um, I didn't think about my parents' lifestyle. It was just what we did. And then when I got older, of course, I adopted, you know, I ate natural foods. Like my mom's cooking that I thought was so boring growing up because it was just like all the stuff we grew. <laughs> <laughs> It wasn't like packaged with cartoon characters and, you know, that like developed my entire aesthetic for my, you know, my um, adulthood and how I raised my children. So trusting in that and knowing that um, them seeing you model integrative, holistic, lived spirituality is probably the best thing you can offer them because their path will be their own. But yes just being there with you witnessing is it does a lot and then the invitation if they ever i always put it out there if you ever if you ever want to do this you know you can yeah. and you know every once in a while someone will say yes or take an interest but but that's the that's the best i think and i think also that that is the antidote to like kind of the um contemporary like enforced religious training that we see that, you know, I experience that I know um, I've worked with several people who really have a lot of religious trauma and, you know, we definitely don't want to go there. So, um, but the, the great thing too about being an animist and having a lived spirituality is it's in everything, right? It's everything you do. It's not like, oh, on Sunday, I dress up and go outside and be an animist. <laughs> Everything, all the days, Everything. every day. Yeah. In the spoons. Mm -hmm. oh, I love it. Yes. Thank you. I do feel that the only thing I feel certain about is that my own, um, like my own nervous system, you know, like my own ability to work with stress um, in a way that is, uh, non-harmful, right? Mm -hmm. It's probably the number one thing that I'm focusing on right now. And that's just, again, just like continuing to heal and release trauma and release like automatic responses to stress mm -hmm. um, so that it's not headed their direction in those days that feel really hard, right? Mm -hmm. And these practices, yes, animist practices are very helpful in that too, for when you go on walks, you can feel it together. Yes. Thank you. Um, 
let me see. I, I know we're going to wrap up soon. There were a couple of things I also wanted to ask you if you don't mind. Of Are course we not. Okay. Yeah, we're good. Well, I know that for me, I hadn't heard the term witch wounds until a couple of years ago. And, um, and I want to be mindful that I use vocabulary that I define, right? And I, I used it earlier. And this is part of how I found out about you is through that term. I was in a period of really noticing um, that I have an ancestral uh, story about overwhelm and um, staying inside because like the world is, there's a, it's just so much and, you're gonna, it's gonna be too exhausting and like closing the throat, like mm. don't use your voice, just agree, agree, get along, like don't be difficult. And I was <laughs> noticing a lot of this kind of in, in my self-study, right? It's just like, this is, this is a thorny one. I feel like it's ancestral, you know, mm. it's like really holding on strong in me. <laughs> And then I started to do ritual work around trying to talk with ancestors to hear them and help with them and just learn more about myself and why I have these funny patterns that I just like, I don't know what otherwise where they come from because mm -hmm. they're not really as much my personal story, you know? Mm -hmm. and, um, and so then I started to hear about this term witch wound as it re might relate to some of the patterning that I see in both sides of my um, lines and the women in my lines. And then somebody had suggested that I look to you, to your work around that topic. And so that's initially how I found your Instagram <laughs> and then eventually joined your Patreon so that I could join in on conversations and hear you talk and teach about working with the witch wounds. So. Mm -hmm. How do you, like, what's your sort of basic definition or how do you talk about that with people who maybe have never heard of this before? <laughs> basic. Um, so like so many things that we've been discussing, the witch wound is multifaceted. So I see a, a huge cultural wounding that occurred in um, again, I'm a student of, you know, European ancestral history and lineage patterns and um, all of the oppressions that we are dealing with now culturally uh, came out of Europe at in this synergy. There's a book called Caliban and the Witch by Silvia Federici, and she talks about the rise of capitalism, the suppression of women, the invention of racism, the, um, the advent of slavery, the uh, you know, suppression of, of homosexuality, like all of these things occurred um, in a span of, you know, really, if you look at human history, it's pretty long, right? Like we've got, you know, many thousands of years that we're working with. This happened like over, you know, I mean, the long view is a couple thousand years, but really, if you look at the short view, it's like a thousand years. And that's just not very long for these dramatic changes. And I started thinking about how, and she links these changes then to the witch hunts and the execution of, you know, 
some say hundreds of thousands, some say millions of um, people, primarily women. And then those were exported to um, all of the colonies and you, that same method of killing women was used to, uh, you know, to demolish indigenous civilizations around the world. So I started thinking that is a tremendous wound, you know, that, that this, we can't have a conversation about what is occurring in culture today until we look at the European psyche and what happened to people to make them act out these things. And when you look again at that truncated timeline, wow, that, that was a huge, huge shift. So, um, so I see the witch wound as a major cultural wounding that impacts everyone on this planet because of course, people of European descent, it is in us, it is our, our lineages, we are of the wounded and we did the wounding. And, you know, people all over the world now have experienced the consequences of this. These systems have become so entrenched that we don't even question them anymore. We're like, oh, patriarchy is just normal. Capitalism, just normal. Racism, totally normal. It's not in human history and certainly not in European history prior to these big cultural shifts in consciousness. And that obviously impacts your personal patterns as a human on this planet. And, and so the witch wound lives with, within us. I have ancestors, I call them claimed ancestors because I can't, I can map a, a you know, a, a non-traditional descendancy by name and region, but I can't map it necessarily with a, an ancestor tree, but I have, I'm, you know, I have ancestors, claim ancestors who were um, executed for witchcraft. And um, certainly that has impacted my own feelings about my magic, my own feelings about my spiritual path, my fear in exploring any of these things. Um, you know, we've talked about scary things in this conversation. We've talked about personal gnosis. We've talked about you know, the goddess hell, we've talked about, you know, now we're talking about witchcraft. These are terrifying ideas. And so that is the wounding too. It keeps us from our own, our own relationship and knowing with, um, with spirit. And so that is the work of healing the witch wound is we come together, we can't solve it, but we can begin to look at it and we can experiment with how to heal it. I don't have any answers, but I know that collectively in community, um, we can speak and share and try a lot of things. And it certainly has made me just having that in my consciousness has been so empowering. And especially with all of the unrest going on right now, culturally, when you see it in the terms of a giant wounding that impacts everyone, it helps with compassion. Yeah. For all. Yes, and Resma Menikem and my grandmother mm -hmm. Anne's talks mm -hmm. about that history as well in a in a different way, but it's the it's all connected. Um, yeah, I feel like um, I spent uh, the first part of my life kind of knowing that I was destined to get into this really scary stuff. <laughs> <laughs> so to speak, as you say, but it was sort of, I just didn't know how to begin. And it was also scary. And I, and I had so much fear that it was kind of irrational, but not totally irrational because 
there were a lot of legitimate things said to me or vibes sent to me um, over a lot of my life to kind of suggest don't go there. <laughs> mm -hmm. Don't discover these things. Like we need you to not get into your power and not know how to access this stuff. Mm -hmm. So um, I, I mean, this is what I love in academia too. The power of a framing device, like just the term witch wound and then getting some the scaffolding of what that can mean for you. And then being able to then take it into your sense of self and your lived experience and see things through this lens, it's very empowering. I just, language is so empowering. And that's so much of what you do for people as I think identify namings, you know, like you put, you give words to things in ways that are very veil removing, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and that's magical. <laughs> That's magical in academia and it's magical in Gnosis. It's magical everywhere, I think. Um, the power of a good frame, you know? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I'm so happy that that works for some people. That's how I've had to come about it myself. And that's, I think one of the things is I, I only ever share my path. You know, this work is not prescriptive. It's just, I don't, and I don't have the energy to like share everybody's path because I'm super limited medically. So um, I just talk about the things that are important to me. And if it's language, then it is a naming that has been helpful to me in structuring my own understanding of something. The, these concepts are hard. And I do think we have, like you said, you received a lot of like barriers to coming into your own power. And um, certainly that has been the case for me and so many people I've worked with when they start working with their ancestors or with the witch wound or with the runes, they're like, it's almost too much. Or I just feel like there's a block there. And there is, mm -hmm. I'm here to tell you that, you know, for all of us, it's real. And whether it's biological, like our lineage patterns saying, don't go there. It's dangerous because it has been for many centuries now, dangerous to walk this path, like not safe. But, um, but then once we break through that, there is a safe, a safety and a comfort in owning who you are. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> That's, this is true. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that doesn't come from any place else. That is. Yes. It's for me, I've taken new identities and to slip into them was the scariest part, you know, mm -hmm. to get out of the liminal space. Um, and then the great delight is in discovering just how invigorating it is to mm -hmm. take the new identity, even if it does mean I now can't look away from hard things. I, I sort of feel like that's the exchange mm -hmm. is I don't look, I can't look away anymore. This is my job now. <laughs> yes. No, absolutely. I fully agree with that. And you have to be totally honest you know, that was one of the things I learned was when I started working with the runes specifically, they were like, no, you have all this stuff that's out of integrity. You can't do it anymore. You know, we're not going to let you because that, that drains away this life force and we actually need you to be present for something else. So, 
Yes. It's the, uh, uh, the reciprocity is mm -hmm. <laughs> the integrity. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, I have one final quick question for you. Um, if you don't mind, since it's called Moon to Moon, I just wondered if you would share if you have anything that lights up in you when you think about living moon to moon or being in life sort of moon to moon, if that means anything. Uh, yes. <laughs> Go yes, <for> it. <laughs> it does. So I have a, a morning writing practice. I write in ritual every morning. I write with a deity. I usually write with Freya. She's just someone I have such a relationship with and, um, and sometimes with my ancestors, but I sit outside and I, I see the moon and I um, always make a drawing of the phase. If, I, if it's present in the sky, of course, if it's a dark, I make a dark moon, but um, I really paying attention to the moon and being in alignment with the cycles, letting my body align with the cycles of the moon, noticing um, the shifts and changes in my body, which are so important for everything from how I interact with people, how I schedule things, whether or not I'm hosting classes or in, you know, interviews, anything that takes energy, it is all lunar 100 percent lunar so i very much live moon to moon <laughs> <laughs> i love that yes i feel that it's like um my container i guess you could say through mm -hmm. the changing processes the transformational processes um the holding sort of nook <laughs> yes <laughs> just the holding nook you know we had horrible uh, wildfire smoke here in Portland for weeks where you couldn't see the sun or the moon mm -hmm. and I felt so adrift I was really it made me really sick too but just not having those anchors knowing that the moon was there and that it was cycling feeling the cycles in my body but not being able to see it and connect with it was really it was so powerful that loss so wow mm -hmm. mm. appreciate it when it comes mm -hmm. oh my gosh every day now i go outside i'm like thank you <laughs> oh i love it thank you so much so you know, I feel like podcast interviews always finish by asking the person um, who's being interviewed how people can find you, how people can um, join you in your work, how they can walk through portals with you. So would you like to share anything coming up or your Instagram feed or website, anything like that? Sure. Um, I have well the ancestral connection class is coming up at the end of november that's the next live class um between now and then and i don't know when this will be coming out but um on the 16th of october i'm having a story circle so i'll be telling a myth and then um on the 31st i am actually doing a rite of passage ceremony and that's open and free for everyone um the details will be on my Patreon, um, so, um, and also on Instagram, um, okay. so people can find me both of those places, but that is, we've been through so many death transitions in this last year. It feels really important on this 
you know, this is the new year in some calendars to honor that with, um, with a journey to the land of the dead, to visit with our ancestors and see what they have to say for us going forward in our transformations. So those are three things coming up in the next couple of months. Wonderful. I'll put the links for those um, in the show notes. As you oh, good. <laughs> uh, yes, that once and in one of the rune classes, you did a journeying um, ceremony. It was so wonderful. It just felt, it was like instant. As soon as you started drumming almost, it was like I, I could feel myself going someplace. So that was going to be really rich. Mm, I'm, <laughs> I'm very excited about it. This is a journey that came forward in my own death transition. And, um, and it feels important for me. I'm marking uh, the second year of that transformation. So I was not ready last year to mark this time. I was still in the thick of processing the trauma. So this year I'm ready. And I, I love offering as I go through these experiences, offering them for anyone um, to come in and, and share because I, you know, this is what I needed and I didn't have access to it, you know, so I just, I love sharing with others on the path and, and I'm so glad to be here with you and be able to put this out there. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, Thank you for doing that. It's a real service to us all. (laughs) Thank you for your time. I'll close it out right here. Um, Really appreciative. Uh, to talking to you and hear your story. And I feel like we covered a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Thank you so much. Oh, thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. It's so great to visit with you. Well, there it is. Thank you for listening today. I want to share that Everything that you need to connect with Laura will be in the show notes for this episode. I also want to share that I reference Laura Valeda Vesta always in the resources of my workbooks. I have a whole resource section where I name teachers. It's not exhaustive. There's way more that I don't even mention, but um, she's been on there from the beginning. And in this new Scorpio workbook that will be um, available to receive in a couple of weeks, um, it's at the printer currently. I have tons of pre-orders. Thank you, pre-order folks. You help um, pay for the printing. Um, In the Scorpio workbook, I speak a lot about death transitions and rites of passage and underworld experiences, meaning, you know, when we cycle through a lot of the things that Laura and I talk about, and I do quote her in the, in the workbook because for clear reasons, uh, she's someone who, um, makes sense to cite in the book, a book about Scorpio. So, I want to encourage those who resonate um, with the topics of the conversation that I had with Laura to please consider purchasing my Scorpio workbook. Remember that these workbooks are not for people with big placements in certain signs. 
they're all cumulatively about the process of self-healing. That's what they're about. They're about knowing yourself, healing yourself, getting real with yourself, loving yourself, so living in present time with yourself and in your relationships and with your body so that you feel more pleasure, more present, and more in your own voice. And every sign has like an arc, a series, storylines through which we can learn how to do that. And so the books are for everyone, every single sign, which is why I'm getting more and more people who are investing in all of them. Thank you. I know it's hard to like reframe the concept around sign away from being something super personal into something that's universal, like that we can all connect with every sign, but it really is at the center of what I do and is what people are resonating with who are loving the books. So if um, rites of passage, if witch wound, if um, deep healing work um, and retrieval of self-worth work are things that you're interested in, maybe even if you're afraid of a little bit, I highly recommend investing in the Scorpio workbook because this is the workbook that houses a lot of that wisdom and gives you exercises and rituals and journaling prompts and all kinds of support to help you work on that with yourself in the intimacy of your own space. So, Because the books are very intimate. That's what makes them really wonderful. So... If those storylines are really powerful for you, even if you have no placements in Scorpio, then the Scorpio workbook is the one that I would recommend that you get if you're looking to start with the first workbook. So thank you for listening. Um, Stay tuned for more teaching that I'm going to be offering coming up. If you want to know when different workbooks are restocked or when workbooks that I have yet to publish are available... Um, the best way to do that is to subscribe to my newsletter at brittonmaru.com and that's where I give updates about everything that I'm doing. Likewise, I also update at Instagram at at brittonmaru whenever something's come forward again that um, had been out of print or hasn't been available yet. I do ship internationally if you listen from somewhere outside of the U.S., And so just reach out to me directly about learning more there. I have an Etsy shop called Britain LaRue Books where you can ask for an international shipping um, yourself without having to reach out to me. So I direct you there as well. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, I hope you will follow Laura and I hope that you will leave a review or rate this podcast. I'm still a baby podcast and the more ratings and reviews that I get all really, really help other people find my work. Thank you so much. And I'm wishing you well through the upcoming Scorpio season and the upcoming Mercury retrograde in mostly Scorpio. Cheers.